0: Well, if you're looking at the outline and you're saying to yourself, how are we going to get through this whole thing in one hour? How long is it going to preach this morning? Uh, Do not worry. That's just uh, the complete outline that we will work and navigate through for at least two, possibly three weeks. So I wanted to have all of that there um, for your reference. Let me begin by reading to you a newspaper article that was written last year by an Associated Press writer. He wrote, the title of the article is, Doctors Left Over 1,500 Tools Inside Patients Last Year. Surgical teams accidentally left clamps, sponges, and other tools inside about 1,500 patients. Um, Two-thirds of the mistakes happened, even though they took meticulous count before and after the procedure, according to standard practice. Most objects were sponges. Also included were metal clamps, electrodes. In two instances, 11 inch retractors were left inside patients during surgery. The article also stated it was prone to happen to those who were kind of healthier and more stronger, wider, I guess, or um, <laughs> forgotten inside patients. You understand what I'm saying? Um, some of the researchers said fatigue. Promote such mistakes, and um, oftentimes, a second surgery was necessary to remove uh, the tools left inside. Well, this morning, I just start by doing a second surgery on one of my previous sermons. Um, I need to retract something that I taught several messages ago, retracted and restated. During our study in John 14, 6, our Lord's second promise, <clears throat> I made a statement about Mr. Rabbi Zacharias, man I respect, man I really esteem in the Lord. <clears throat> and I, pre- I presented him holding to the exception view. There are three views, three erroneous, thoroughly unbiblical views that are common in Christianity today. The first view is the eschatological view. Concerning to those who have never heard about the gospel of Christ, those who have never had the opportunity to repent and trust in Christ, some Christians believe that there is a second chance in the eschaton, in the end times, after people die, Christ will give them another opportunity to hear the gospel from himself, and they'll have a chance to believe. The second view is the election view, that God knows who are the elect, and all the elect will be saved, It's hyper-Calvinism, warped Calvinism, that all elect will be saved. It is not for us to worry. The third view is the exception view. That's the position that says that God has made a special exception to all who are sincere in their religions. And they have never had an opportunity to profess faith in Christ. God will make a special exception and save them. So that position states that if you're a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, and you are faithful to the light that's given to you, God will make a special exception and you will be saved. <clears throat> well, I wrongly included Robbie Zacharias as one of those who are proponents of this view, based upon his interview in Lee Strobel's book, Case For faith, one of our members brought to my attention that Mr. Zacharias is not a proponent of this exception view. Well, upon re-examination, upon looking at the x-rays, once again, I admit that I was wrong to include him as a proponent of this view. I take my work seriously as a student and teacher of God's Word. Precision and accuracy are not auxiliary commitments. They are the main commitments, as any teacher of God's Word. So I wrongly and unfairly portrayed his position. Now, I need to continue to uh, uh, make some statements. I still believe Mr. Zacharias is wrong, but not the degree of the exception view. If I were to rightly label label him, I'll label him semi-exception view, neo-exception view or partial exception view, because his position is this, that if you are a good Muslim, if you are a good Buddhist, and you've never heard the Gospel, there is still hope for you, because God will intervene naturally or miraculously. He will give you visions, dreams, send angels, To intervene and lead you to the gospel, to a gospel preacher or to the Bible where you will be saved by the gospel. That's his view. And he gives two illustrations. One illustration is of a Muslim woman who was depressed one day and suddenly she said, I need Jesus. And somehow she got hold of the gospel and she became saved. Another illustration that he speaks of is a Sikh man named Sundar Singh, who came to know Christ after Christ visibly appeared to him one evening when he was alone in his room. He saw Jesus. Jesus came to him and led him to have an incredible spiritual experience, which ultimately led him to read the Bible and he became saved. Lee Strobel asked him in the book, you're saying, quote, you're saying that regardless of where a person lives in the world, anyone who re- responds to the understanding that they do already have and sincerely seeks God in some way will be given an opportunity respo- to respond to Him. Is that what you were saying? And Rabbi Zacharias responded, <clears throat> quote, I believe so. So it's still erroneous, I believe, but not to the degree of the exception view, now what is he saying? He's saying that to those who've never heard the gospel, there is still hope, and the implications are profound. Apostle Paul said in Romans 10:9, "How can they believe unless they hear the gospel? And then he said, "How can they hear the gospel unless someone preaches the gospel? A man has to preach the gospel." How can a man preach the gospel unless they are sent? Apostle Paul believed that there was only one way for a man to be saved. It was through hearing of the gospel by a preacher. There was no other way. In fact, if anyone should believe, should believe this semi-exception view, it should be the Apostle Paul, because what happened to him? In Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appeared to him, opened his heart, closed his eyes, sent Ananias to proclaim the gospel to him. So if anyone would say, this is right, it should be Apostle Paul, but what did he do? No, he didn't say, you know, we don't have to worry about evangelism, we don't have to worry about missions, they will come to us, Christ will intervene, Christ will show himself to all people who are sincere in their faith. He didn't do that, he didn't say that. He exerted Himself. His life's ambition was to preach Christ where it had not been preached. He personally sacrificed. He personally suffered. And He says at the end of His life, in 2 Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. He aspired for missions because He rightly believed that without the Gospel being preached by a man, those who have never heard the gospel, they are without hope. What about Cornelius, Acts chapter 10? God shows a vision, sends Peter. Isn't that an instance of this semi-exception view? Well, as we read the book of Acts, it's getting very technical. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's a historical account of what happened in the New Testament church. It is not normative for us today. Secondly, Cornelius entering the church is a unique event in redemptive history. It is the gen- inclusion of Gentiles into the church, first time where Gentiles come into the church. And it needed apostolic affirmation. Peter needed to be there as the head of the, of the apostles to recognize and affirm that Gentiles are on an equal footing with Jews in the household of God. He needs to give Gentiles right-hand of fellowship, witness for himself that they are speaking in tongues as proof of their genuine faith in Christ, genuine acceptance to the church. Therefore, that was a one-time event in church history. So, although Mr. Zacharias is not wrong to the point of the exception view, and I do apologize for my lack of precision. Um, he is still, we believe, erroneous in his view that without the gospel, there is no hope. I mean, church missions tells us that. Hutton Taylor was part of the missionary in, endeavor to China, and he had the coastal cities the mission agency, had the coastal cities, had a gospel presence there. and Hutton Taylor said, "We most." Go, we must go to the interiors of China. Because unless they hear the gospel, they will not be saved. It is hopeless. Right? Without the gospel being preached to them directly, we owe the gospel to them. And that's what motivates and propels uh, missions. The Wycliffe Bible translators, just providing the gospel is not, is not enough. We must have it in their language, And we must proclaim the gospel to them directly. So, I do still believe that Mr. Deckerash is wrong. Again, I apologize. I was was wrong in this one point. But it's a good reminder and accountability, not just for me, but for all leaders, teachers, and shepherds who are at Cornerstone. For the brother that came up to me and came to me and talked with me, I appreciate that, brother. I need that accountability. We all do. It is um, it is good for our souls. Turn the importance of the work that we do, making sure that we do it with utmost integrity. As your as your pastor, your elders, your shepherds, your leaders, all your teachers, we invite such accountability in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, that's one whole sermon right there. Let's get to our sermon this morning. Um, Our study, we're continuing our study in the promises of Christ. Six promises given to the disciples in John chapter 14. Six promises that cure troubled hearts. Again, the theme of John 14 is verse 1 and verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. What is the answer to our troubled hearts? What soothes cures, helps us in our troubles. Christ said in verse 1, you believe in God's promises. It's an emphatic. You already believe in God's promises. Now, here are my six promises. Believe in them. Believe in my promises to you. The first promise was his personal return. That although he leaves, it is not a permanent leaving. It is a temporary leaving. And that he will return in person that we might be with Him forever. His second promise is the promise of verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's promising them, follow me. I will lead you to the Father. Trust me. I know the way because I am the way. The third promise was studied last week. Whatever you ask in my name for God's glory. I will do it. Ask me in my name for the glory of the Father. And whatever you ask, I will answer you. I will answer. This morning, we are at the prom- we're, we're at promise for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father. And He will give you another Helper observe here that each person of the Trinity is spoken of as performing a separate function. Jesus promises that He will pray. The Father promises that I will send. The Holy Spirit promises, I will come and I will help. I will be your comforter. In fact, John sixteen seven, Christ says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so powerful so pivotal important. His comfort is so strong. He says, it's better that I go. And we're like, no, it isn't, Jesus. It's better you stay. And Christ says, no, it's better that I go. Because by me going, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will come. And He will come to you. And He will help you. He will dwell within you. Verse 18, chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As New Covenant Christians, it is absolutely critical that you and I have a biblical understanding, a biblical and comprehensive understanding of the person, role, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you four reasons why, three or four reasons why. We'll see if I have three or four Three or four reasons why we must have a right understanding of the Holy Spirit. First of all, in your outlines, is number two. I want to start there with number one. The first reason is, there is in the Christian community today, great confusion and a wrong understanding of the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit. G.I. Packer writes, The Doctor of the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did. They know that He redeemed men by His atoning death, even if they differ among themselves as to what exactly this involved. But the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what work the Holy Spirit does. And isn't that true? If I were to ask you about God and the attributes of God, I think most of us would be able to answer clearly. If I were to ask you about justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, you would be able to answer. If I were to ask you about inerrancy, infallibility, sufficiency of scriptures, I think you would, you would know how to a- answer. If I were to ask you about the Holy Spirit, if I were to ask you what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if I were to ask you baptism of the Holy Spirit, or even spiritual gifts, I think most of us would be hard-pressed to give clear, biblical, cogent answers to these questions. In a weird way, a particular movie and a particular scene in a movie has caused just great confusion, has done more to confuse Christians than anything else in our modern society. It was a couple decades ago, maybe you've seen this movie. This guy has to like fly a plane and drop a bomb into this planet. And then he has all this technology surrounding him. He's got this joystick and people are trying to kill him. And then, as he's, he has to calculate it perfectly to drop this bomb into this particular area to win this battle. And then he hears a voice. And then the voice is, Use the force, Luke, right? <laughs> Don't think! Turn off your mind! Don't trust your rationale. All right? Don't be logical. Don't be rational. Turn off technology. They're an enemy to the force. All right? Close your eyes. Use the force, Luke. And then they say to one another, may the force be. So you guys seen the movie, I guess, right? <laughs> well, true or not, this, is, this kind of theology has infiltrated the church. For the last 20 years, well intentioned, well meaning Christians see the Holy Spirit as some kind of force, some kind of power. And in prayer, in ministry, they use the force, right? They use the Holy Spirit. They control the Holy Spirit. They throw the Holy Spirit, right? They use the power of the Holy Spirit and they control it. They tap into that power. And in a mystical, spiritual way, they try to exercise, even spiritual gifts. Well, because of this confusion, we need to understand, the minister the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Second reason that we must understand, and so crucial is, because if you don't know it by now, I hope you know if you're members of Cornerstone, that we are a fundamentalist church. I'm a fundamentalist, right? That we are fundamental Christians that we are Bible-believing Christians. And as such, we are almost afraid of the Holy Spirit. It's almost something that's unwelcome in our, in our church to speak of the Holy Spirit, to talk about spiritual gifts. We are uncomfortable with the doctrine and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have a tendency to overreact to the extremes of the charismatic movement, so we've overreacted to the other extreme where, for us, Christianity is all just doctrine, all theology. It's all books and pens and paper and experience of the Holy Spirit. The passionate, vibrant, living by faith through prayer has been left to the side. And for us, everything must be logical, everything must be clear and doctrinally figured out and must fit into our grid and paradigm before we can live it out. And so it results in a ministry that's being done more out of man's power, more out of the flesh, rather than by faith in the Holy Spirit. So it's doubly crucial for us as Bible-believing Christians, for us to understand the Holy Spirit. Third reason why we must have a biblical understanding is because our Lord Jesus Christ left us in the care of the Holy Spirit. In a way, the age of Jesus Christ is over. We, we want to relive His incarn, incarnate ministry. We want to be there in the Sermon on the Mount. We want to walk with Jesus in Galilee, and we want to see Him walk on water. But that's history. That's past. Christ has left us, and He has sent the Holy Spirit. So now, we are in the age of the Holy Spirit where it is the Holy Spirit, He is the one now comforting us, caring for us, guiding, teaching, leading, convicting, and building us up in Jesus Christ. He is the one that's empowering us, granting us authority, granting us illumination of His, of scriptures that He has written, so that we might carry out His work. therefore, we must understand the Holy Spirit because He's the one that's indwelling in us and working within us and through us for His purposes. And the fourth and final reason, I think I, think I just thought about this uh, last night preparing for this morning. You know, people might think the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, theology of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology is irrelevant and practical and It's just doctrine for us to know, but not to be practiced. It's not practical. And I would disagree with you vehemently. I would say because we are in the age of the Holy Spirit, this is the most relevant doctrine. This is the most practical. Like all of us, we want to be spiritual Christians. Even the world, non-Christians, they want to be spiritual. They don't want religion, they don't want Christianity, but they want spirituality well, brothers and sisters, how can we be spiritual without the Holy Spirit? That's not a possibility. If you're trying to be a spiritual Christian, if you want to abound in the fruits of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22, how is that possible if you don't know the Holy Spirit? If you don't know how the Spirit works? I mean, this is one of the reasons why one of the reasons for the charismatic extremes. They think spirituality is speaking in a foreign language. They think spirituality. One lady, while she was preaching, stood still for 18 hours. You know, and that was, everybody said, wow, look how spiritual she is. You know, she can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or they think, you know, you fall down and you shake and you make animal noises or you laugh for an hour or two. Then that's spiritual. Or others talk about being slain in the Spirit, and isn't that spiritual? Why? Because Christians don't understand the Holy Spirit. They think it's irrelevant. It's just some force that we tap into. No. It is not The singular proof that a person has the Holy Spirit. It's not tongues. It's not prophecy. It's not working of miracles. It's not just some great spiritual experiences like going to heaven, going to hell, having angels visit you. It's not abounding in good works. We'll talk about this next week, but it is it's so powerful. The singular proof that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, is vanilla ice cream, mundane obedience to the commandments of Christ. That's the singular proof. It's not these spectacular, powerful, incredible spiritual experience and spiritual works, the singular proof Christ says that you have the Holy Spirit, that you're the possessors, or rather the Holy Spirit possesses you, is that you obey His commands. And the context there is John 14, the closest command that Christ has given was John 13, 34 and 35, right? A new commandment I give to you. The old commandment was love your neighbor as you love yourself. The new commandment was love one another as I have loved you. So the single greatest proof that the Holy Spirit indwells within you is your love for fellow Christians. If that is present and abounding in your life, that means you have the Holy Spirit. If that isn't abounding in your life, you could abound in all these spectacular spiritual gifts, but you need to question whether you really have the Holy Spirit that's, that's Apostle Paul right First Corinthians 13 the mnemonicoids the, the Corinthians these spiritual Corinthians who are performing all these gifts powers wonders and miracles and Paul says look the first fruit of the Holy Spirit Galatians 5.22 is love love for one another and the way you're practicing spiritual gifts shows to me that you're not loving your fellow brethren you're loving yourself you're, you're you're puffed up. It is self love. It's not Christian love. It is a it is just clanging gong, a symbol. It is nothing. All your spiritual gifts without love. And he makes that point to Corinthians, showing the relevance of this high theology, high doctrine. So understand that as we navigate through The deity and person of the Holy Spirit. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we look at Old Testament believers and ask ourselves, were they regenerate? Did they experience permanent indwelling? Maybe they were unregenerate, did not experience permanent indwelling. Maybe they were regenerate, but no permanent indwelling. As we go through next week, Old Covenant Old Testament Covenant, Old Covenant Theology, and the Mosaic Covenant, as we go through the New Covenant, as we go through how the New Covenant promised to Israel was delayed. The disciples expected God's kingdom to be established at Pentecost, but it was delayed. Why? Because Israel rejected Christ. And then the inauguration of the Church Age, that was was a mystery to the Old Testament Prophets. As we go through all of that, and as we go through the particularity of the Holy Spirit, given only to believers, and then finally the proof of the Holy Spirit, understand there is a relevance. That these things, these truths are important. These aren't just truths for theologians, seminarians, and pastors. These are truths for all believers who love Christ. Because they have a direct relevance And how we live our Christian lives. So, with that said, let's study together. Let's uh, discover the Holy Spirit. Will you go on this journey with me to learn our new parent, our new custodian, our Paraclete, our Comforter, Holy Spirit? Let's, uh, you know, tune out and, and put aside Star Wars. And with a tabula rosa, blank slate, let's rediscover once and for all a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit. The deity and person of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is fully God, co-equal with the Father and the Son. The Scriptures speak repeatedly that the Holy Spirit is of the same essence as the Father and the Son. He is completely equal with God. He has all the attributes that God has, that Jesus Christ has. The first attribute is holiness. The Bible is clear that only God is holy. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? First Samuel 2.2, 2, There is no one holy like the Lord, like Yahweh. Revelation 15.4, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. Now, over 90 times in the Bible, the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is holy. It tells us that He has an attribute in perfection that belongs only to God the Father and Jesus Christ therefore he is God second attribute is his eternality eternality john 14:16 the holy spirit a counselor will be with us forever not just on this side of eternity but in the millennial kingdom in fulfillment of jeremiah 31 ezekiel 36 joel chapter 2 the israelites had a corrupt heart the Holy Spirit was outside of them. The law was apart from them. God promises, I will give you a new heart and the Holy Spirit will dwell within you. Not just on earth, not just in the millennial kingdom, but forever. Eternality the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9.14, the Spirit is also called the Eternal Spirit. Not only is He eternal, He is omnipresent. Omnipresent. Psalm 139, 7-8, David cried out, Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my depths, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The Holy Spirit reaches far, verse 9, as to the east and the west. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. The works that God does, such as creation, is also ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2, in creation, the Holy Spirit was there, hovering over the waters. Job 33-4, Job says, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 104, 30. When you send your Spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. In Matthew 12, 28, Christ said the miracles that He had done were done by the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 18-19, Paul says that the works that He has performed in His ministry was done by the Holy Spirit as well. Not only is He omnipresent, not only is He omnipotent, He is also omniscient. The Holy Spirit knows all things. 1 Corinthians 2.10 The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11, he goes on, The Spirit of God knows all things, knows the thoughts of God. John 14.26 He knows all things, therefore He is able to teach us all things. Just like the Father, just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is omniscient. These are the attributes that belong to God, belong to the Son, and they belong to the Holy Spirit. Not only does He have the attributes of God, He is also equated with God in the Scriptures. Equal with God. The triadic formula is found in many places in the Scriptures. For example... For example, Matthew 28, 19. There are three persons. You are to baptize them. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christ says in a singular name. Three persons, but they share one name. Why do they share one name? Because they're equal. This verse indicates both plurality and complete unity. In a discussion of the Holy Spirit, in the discussion of spiritual gifts, in 1 Corinthians 12:4 through6, Paul puts the spirit, the Lord and God, in grammatically parallel constructions. First Corinthians 12:4 through6, Paul says, "Different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit, different kinds of service, but the same Lord, different kinds of workings, but the same God." Likewise, in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, Paul closes his letter with a three-part prayer. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Triadic formula. Placing them on an equal level. All is God. Secondly, divine names are given to the Holy Spirit. Divine names. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, the apostles tell Ananias and Sapphira they lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, they say, you lied to God. One of the names given to the Holy Spirit is God. You lied to Theos. You lied to God, to the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament, we see Isaiah entering the temple of God. He sees a vision of Yahweh sitting on his throne. The seraphim surrounds him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in response to um, worship and uh, salvation and sanctification of Isaiah, God responds in verse 9, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. That's what God says. In Acts chapter 28 verse 25, the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit spoke these truths. Yahweh spoke in the Old Testament, New Testament says, that's the Holy Spirit. They're equal. Another word interchange is seen in 1 Corinthians 3.16. And 1 Corinthians 6.19, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells within you? We are temples of God, and also temples of the Holy Spirit. Not only does He have the attributes of God, not only is the Holy Spirit equated with God, He also does the work of God. As stated previously, He, he creates Genesis 1-2, Job 33-4, Psalm 104-30, Matthew 12-28. The Holy Spirit saves. Jonah 2-9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. And here, in John 3-5-7, Jesus Christ says, that no one can enter the kingdom unless he is born of water and of the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The Holy Spirit saves. Titus 3.5 He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Not only does He create, not only does the Holy Spirit save, but He also sanctifies. The Holy Spirit does the work of sanctification in believers. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We are sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has the attributes. He He is seen as equal with God in every way. He also does the work of God. Not only is the Holy Spirit God, He is also a person. He is a person. He's not a force. He's not an abstract spirit. He is a person. Charles Spurgeon said, We are so accustomed to talk about the influence of the Holy Spirit and His sacred operations and graces that we are apt to forget that the Holy Spirit is truly and actually a person, that He is an actual life, an existence. He is a person in the essence of the Godhead. God the Holy Spirit is not an influence, is not an emanation, not a stream of something flowing from the Father, but He is as much an actual person as either God the Son or God the Father. In John 14, 16, Christ says, I will give you another helper. Another meaning, someone like God the Father. God the Father is a comforter. He is a helper. I am a comforter. I am a helper. Just like the Father, just like me, I will give you another helper. And that is the Holy Spirit. And just like we have a personal relationship with God the Father, and just like we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. All these indicate, for lack of a better term, that the Holy Spirit has a personality. That He is a person. A few characteristics of personhood. First of all, intelligence. Holy Spirit has intelligence. First Corinthians 2.11 The Holy Spirit knows. Romans 8.27 refers to the mind of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes judgments that are good to Him. Acts 15.28 It seemed good to the Holy Spirit to not, to not add any obligations to Gentile believers. The Holy Spirit has a mind, has intelligence. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has, has a will, makes decisions, He determines 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that the Spirit determined allotting of spiritual gifts to each believer. Secondly, communication. The Holy Spirit speaks. Numerous verses say that the Holy Spirit spoke. Acts 8, 29, 10, 19. 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Holy Spirit says. Hebrews 3.7, the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the past. The Holy Spirit speaks in terms of I. He personally speaks. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has emotions. And He personally interacts with believers. The Holy Spirit may be lied to. We can lie to Him. Acts 5.3 Acts 5.9 The Holy Spirit may be tested. Hebrews 10.29 We can insult the Holy Spirit when we willfully sin. We not only trample on the body of Jesus Christ as an insult to Christ but by doing that we insult the Holy Spirit. And of course, Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And the context is treating the prophecies with contempt. Hearing the Word of God and our hearts are hardened. We don't want to obey. We don't want to listen. We don't want to follow. We doubt the Word of God. We question it. We question its sufficiency, authority, its inerrancy. When we doubt the words of Scripture, we're doubting the Holy Spirit's words. Therefore, we're grieving Him. We're causing Him sorrow. John fourteen sixteen points to the fact that the Holy Spirit interacts with believers. When we experience comfort, when we recall the promises of God's Word, promises of Christ, and we're comforted, that's the Holy Spirit. When we study the scriptures and we understand doctrine, we understand the Word of God. We're, our eyes are open. We're illumined to truth. That's the Holy Spirit. When we're in prayer and God convicts us of sin, when we're in fellowship and we're convicted by a fellow Christian, that's the Holy Spirit right there, interacting with our with our souls. Holy Spirit guides. Holy Spirit. Makes truths truth known. The Holy Spirit is interacting with us. Now, the issue of worship. Well, Pastor James, if the Holy Spirit is, is God, if he is co equal with God. If he has all the attributes of God, if he does the, the work of God, shouldn't we worship the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't we pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, there are no examples in the Scriptures of worshiping the Holy Spirit. There are no scriptural examples of praying to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Holy Spirit's role is to lead us to Christ. He is self-effacing. He lives to honor the Father and glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit desires not to draw attention to Himself. Because he willingly came and he was sent by the Father to glorify Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's role is to open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, the attractiveness of our Lord, the loveliness of our Master. So the last thing the Holy Spirit wants to do is attract attention to Himself. That's his role. That's why we don't show we don't worship the Holy Spirit. We don't pray. To the Holy Spirit. Look at John 16, verse 13 and 14. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to Me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The Holy Spirit has come to glorify the Son. Jesus Christ this is a promise that Christ gives to us in John 14 he says it is good that I leave but I did not leave you as orphans I will ask the father myself and the father has agreed to send the Holy Spirit and he will come to you and to be with you forever now you might say Pastor James wait a minute Hold on a minute here. What kind of gift is this? What kind of promise is this? Wasn't the Holy Spirit already given in the Old Testament? The verses you quoted, I know Job. That's from the Old Testament. I know Psalms. Genesis. That's Old Testament. You know, it's like when I was young, I got a sweater for Christmas. I said to myself, What kind of gift is this? I already have a sweater, right? Why do I need another one? Give me a toy that I don't have, that's a gift. Don't give me what I already have. That might be a question for some of you because wasn't the Holy Spirit already given? What promise is this? That He will give us the Holy Spirit. That He will send the Holy Spirit. Well, we got limited time, but let's, let's get into this. Here's a key difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament believers and their relationship to the Holy Spirit what is the difference between the Old Testament believers in the Holy Spirit and New Testament believers in the Holy Spirit? I have the questions listed. Were the Old Testament saints regenerated? Were they born again? Were they saved? Or were they born or were they born again and made into new creation the same way as New Testament saints? Another question, did they have the permanent indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit? As we do, there are three options. Three options. Option number one, and your outline is wrong, it's no regeneration, no permanent indwelling. That's option number one. Some Bible students and Bible teachers believe that Old Testament saints were not saved. And they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit Figures such as Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit dwelt with them. Right? They dwelt, he, the Holy Spirit dwelt among them, but not within them, and certainly not permanently. An impartation of salvation, of a new heart, new spirit, was, is only given after the cross, so they were not saved, they were not regenerate. Second option is regeneration and selective permanent indwelling. Selective permanent indwelling. These proponents say, it is hard to believe, nearly impossible to say, that these Old Testament saints were not saved, were not regenerate. Just look at their lives. Consider the lives like Abraham, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, Women like Ruth and Hannah, surely they could not live such lives if they were not truly born again. Their lives of faith and obedience, their character of love and humility, their commitment to the glory of God tell us that they were born again, that they were saved. And yes, the Holy Spirit did not dwell in all Old Testament saints, but some, the truly giants of the faith, the Holy Spirit indwelt in them. That's the second view. The third view is regeneration, but no universal, permanent indwelling. This view is that, yes, Old Testament saints were regenerated, but they were not permanently indwelt. Regeneration, in terms of their salvation, but the Spirit's presence was an abiding presence. That can and did leave when the person sinned. Uh, one way the Holy Spirit was given to the Old Testament saints was to the kings of Israel. Bible students call this theocratic anointing. It was first given to Moses. The Holy Spirit gave him wisdom, administrative ability, mini, uh, military skills to ably lead the nation of Israel. Israel. Jethro came in Exodus 18 and said, Moses, you can't handle this. Appoint 70 elders. And they will take care of the judicial matters of Israel. And so the Holy Spirit came upon these 70 elders to rule and lead Israel. It came upon Saul in 1 Samuel 10. King Saul. He was previously a young farm boy. He was so inept, he couldn't take care of donkeys. He was inept. But he was chosen by God. and the Holy Spirit was given to him, he became an able, mighty, powerful ruler of Israel. But in 1 Samuel 15, as soon as he sinned, what happened? The Holy Spirit left. And in that instant, that ability was gone. That anointing disappeared. And he became a demented, inept leader who feared man, no longer feared God. And you saw the decay of his spiritual life where he committed suicide in the battlefield in shame. When David in 2 Samuel commits sin with Bathsheba, murders Bathsheba's husband Uriah, he goes to God in Psalm 51 and he prays, what does he pray? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He was not saying, don't take away my salvation. He said, when the child died, I will go to the child, will he come to me? He knew he was going to God the Father and see his child. His fear was to have the same thing happen to him that happened to King Saul. When the Spirit of God left, he became a demented, inept leader, suffering in shame. And he prayed, Lord, do not take away this theocratic anointing from me, even though my sin. Show me mercy. Show me grace. In John 14, what is Christ promising? Christ is promising not just regeneration to all who believe in Christ, but He's promising permanent indwelling. Permanent indwelling. John 14, 16. My Father will give you another helper to be with you forever. 17, part C, last part. You know Him. The Holy Spirit, He dwells with you And he will be in you. Verse 16, forever. David never experienced that. Saul, Solomon, Old Testament saints never experienced this. This is what all Christians experience the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He'll never leave us. If you have an Arminian bone in your body, look at verse 16 and 17. Forever. Forever. Let me close with some implications of the Holy Spirit. A lack of time. I'll just go over a couple things. Um, this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians. You cannot say, God saved me, but he cannot sanctify me. Right? Because, you know, the Holy Spirit that He gave gave me was defective, or He gave me a partial filling, or I got the 99 cents brand of the Holy Spirit. Therefore I'm saved, but I'm not sanctified. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells in all Christians. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He saves and He sanctifies. Every Christian has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. There is no double portion later on in the Christian life. I am just a Christian, but one day, by the grace of God, I will really come in and become a disciple, and I will have this quantum leap in my Christian life where the Holy Spirit will truly dwell within me. And then, I will bear a spiritual fruit, showing myself to be a Christian, true Christian, or a full Christian. There's just two categories of the Christian. Regular Christian and spirit-filled Christian. No. If you are a Christian, you are spiritually filled forever. Right? If you don't have a spiritual life, you need to consider, there's a good chance, I don't have the Holy Spirit. That is why. It's not... I don't have the full measure of the Holy Spirit I don't have the Holy Spirit at all because that's the only other possibility of my bankruptcy of my lack of any kind of spiritual life in my life the first proof the final proof of you of the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts is again love for one another We'll spend a lot more time in this, but let's truly consider this. He sandwiches it. I mean, He says it again and again and again. Verse 15, verse 21, 23, 24. Whoever loves Me has My commandments, and he will obey My commandments. And that's the Holy Spirit's work. The first work the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer, Galatians 5.22, is produce love. This great intense love for fellow Christians—that's the first proof. It's not anything else. You know, I talked to a guy know, about a few years ago, and he said he was a Christian because he experienced electricity when he became a Christian. He had this experience. He had this—he was zapped, and he felt it. He was undeniable, and that was just proof positive he's a Christian. I said, no, brother, not at all. Those things prove nothing. You know, a, vision, <laughs> a visitation by an angel proves nothing. 2 Corinthians says that, do you not know that the devil himself disguises himself as an angel of light? He comes to you and give you visions and dreams and appearances of great spiritual experiences. It means nothing. The first, ultimate proof of the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit as love for fellow brethren. May we abound in this, showing ourselves to be true Christians. Let's pray. Oh Father, what lofty truths from the Old and New Testament. Oh Lord, what powerful and mighty truths concerning the Holy Spirit, the one who is empowering us, one who saved us, one who is sanctifying us, one who is comforting, convicting, encouraging, edifying, building up, one who is empowering us for the work of the ministry, one who has given me the power to study the Word of God and preach it this morning, the one who is in all and doing all in our midst. Lord, may these truths not be neglected in our lives. May we know with clarity the truth of the Holy Spirit so that we might live and walk worthy and be filled and led by the Holy Spirit for Your glory and for Your honor, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, that we would not insult Him, that we would not neglect Him, misuse Him for our own purposes, Lord, that we would submit to the Holy Spirit that we might produce the fruits that He intends in us, a greater dependence upon You, Lord, a greater desire to glorify You, a greater love for Christ, and a greater love for Christ's people. Lord, um, may our study this morning grant us a greater fervency to study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. May no one say, Oh, I know enough. I know Him full well. May this study just be an impetus for us to pursue the knowledge of the Holy Spirit that we might walk in a manner worthy of You. We thank You for, Lord Jesus, not leaving us as orphans, not leaving us to ourselves. We thank You for sending to us the paraclete that He might guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.